Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. As you know, Leanne's mother lives in Farmington, New Mexico, up in the Four Corners area of New Mexico. As we go from here to there, we travel several thousand feet in elevation, as you can imagine, from 300-something feet to thousands of feet high. And one sign that we drive by that always captures my attention says this, Continental Divide. That means you're, you're way up there. The Continental Divide is a natural divide that occurs on each continent. And as a result of that divide, it determines where river systems flow, what basin or ocean or sea they will end up there. Everything is divided there. They will never meet. They will always flow those separate directions. Sometimes it's simply referred to as the Great Divide. But most of the time, the Continental Divide, that natural barrier of a mountain range that, that causes that separation. Well, as we open our Bibles today to the book of Isaiah and the Gospels, we will find that there is not just a natural divide, but there's a supernatural divide, and that person is Jesus. He is the supernatural eternal one that divides people into two categories. People who are in Christ, living that abundant life that only Christ can give, uh, headed toward an eternity in heaven, and those who are not in Christ, who have never submitted to his lordship and turned from their sin and personally professed him as their savior, those will be divided from the other and headed toward an eternal hell. So when we celebrate this season, we are actually celebrating the great divide. Everything hinges on our response to the person of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament points toward his coming. All of the New Testament points back toward his coming. That is the point in history where everything was set. Everything was put in place toward the crucifixion where the eternal divide would be sealed and all who come to Christ would move toward him and toward heaven and all apart from him would move toward hell. So let's look today at this eternal divide. We're going to look at promises, predictions, and portraits of Jesus the Messiah in the prophecies of Isaiah. And in doing so, we're going to look at a, a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus that was prophesied through Scripture in the prophet of Isaiah. So we'll be going back and forth from Isaiah to the Gospels. 
repeatedly today. We're going to look first of all at Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, and then Luke 4, 16 to 30, as we consider this eternal divide. So let's look first of all at Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Here Isaiah is prophesying the coming of the Messiah. This is what he says about the yet-to-come Messiah some 700 years before Christ was born. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, He has sent me to heal and bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then let's turn to Luke chapter four, the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, Luke chapter four, the third gospel, Here we find Jesus entering the synagogue, the place of worship known as the house of prayer. He is much more than our example, but here he sets the example that even Jesus faithfully attended worship. So it says in verse 16, so Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed or downtrodden, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, 
You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Then all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rage. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that you would give us eyes to see truth, ears to hear that truth, and hearts to obey your truth. Father, I pray you would take the the words of Isaiah's prophecy and the words of the gospel and bring them together to cause us to worship and magnify who Jesus is. So now we trust you to please speak through your word and to speak through me. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seemed like a a simple momentous day for Jesus, the rabbi, to return home, much like when we have people pursuing ministry, when they come home, we love to hear them preach and love to see the spiritual growth in their lives. And so here Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's asked to do something that was very common in that day. They would have various aspects of worship that would build up to a scripture reading and then what we would refer to as a sermon. Jesus, as we read, was handed the scroll of Isaiah. He opened the scroll to the place from where he would read. Now, if you think we have a hard time thumbing through pages that are marked with page numbers, chapters and verses. Just imagine a scroll of Isaiah with no chapters or verses in it, just a a free-flowing prophecy. No divisions, none of that. But Jesus, who had inspired the writing of that, God in flesh, opened that scroll and found the place where the words were located that he would point people's attention to that day. And on that day in the scroll of Isaiah, 
He points to them to the words that we read in Isaiah chapter 61. It was a very prominent prophecy in the Jewish mind. They had heard those prophecies and they had been passed down from generation to generation, century to century, awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And they knew the great promise that the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. He would anoint him or set him apart as the Messiah and many powerful things would happen through him. And so on this day, after 400 years of prophetic silence, the scroll of Isaiah is being read. The assumption is he's just an ordinary rabbi come home to worship. They are mesmerized by him as he reads the words of Scripture. Let's just pause there for a moment. Can you imagine hearing Jesus reading Scripture? I can't even begin to fathom what the the feeling might have been, what the emphasis might have been. But as he read that, they they were in awe, it says. They were, were, were filled with awe and marveled at him because of the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. Just after he read the scripture, all eyes were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know what he was saying? He was saying, this is talking about me. I am the long-awaited one. I am the Messiah of which we have just read. I am the fulfillment of those prophecies and predictions and pictures that you find in the scroll of Isaiah. I stand before you as the grand fulfillment of those prophecies. And then he does a very daring thing that we might read past. But he begins to talk about how many people were bypassed by the word and the activity of God who were Israelites, but the power of God came to Gentiles or the nations or people groups other than the Jews. He uses Old Testament illustrations from the Old Testament, which was all of the scripture they would be aware of and uh, concerned with. And he begins to point to pictures there of Gentiles upon whom the blessing of God came. And that was very offensive. And it says, then all of those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath or rage. They rose up and took him out of the city to a cliff to throw him off and destroy him, but he turned and walked through them to safety. And thus, we have part of the inauguration of his ministry. It was the great divide. Some would marvel Some would grit their teeth, but none would remain neutral toward the person 
of Jesus. And today it's very possible scripture will be fulfilled in your hearing. Not the physical presence of the Messiah, but, but the reality of whether or not you come to Christ, if you reject Christ or if you put off coming to Christ, you're actually rejecting him and the scripture is being fulfilled that you are condemned already or if you have put your faith and trust in this one that we know to be the promised Messiah, you have the gift of eternal life and security throughout all eternity. So what I want us to do is to look at what led up to this and what resulted from this scene in the gospel according to Luke. In doing so, I want us to move from Isaiah back to the gospels and look at some scenes and some prophecies there. First of all, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And when we move to the gospel, you might want to keep your finger there at Isaiah 7 because we're going to go right back to Isaiah 9. But we're going to find two prophecies and pictures of the Messiah that are most helpful to us in understanding the season in which we find ourselves and putting into context the birth of Christ. But here's the truth we're going to find in these verses we look at. God constantly confirms his word and fulfills his promises. God constantly confirms his word and fulfills his promises. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So if you look from there to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following, uh, we will find the fulfillment of those words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just and upright man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. 
Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. So here's what we have. We have Isaiah prophesying that Jesus would be born in a supernatural way, in an impossible way to a young virgin. And that prophecy is fulfilled in the interaction of the angel with Joseph, who would function as the earthly father and uh, guardian of Jesus. The gospel according to Matthew gives us the birth account of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. But then we find another prophecy that, that pulls us over to the gospel according to Luke. Luke the physician, the one God used to write the gospel that bears his name, the gospel according to Luke, and he talks about how scripture was fulfilled in the interaction of the angel and Mary. Beautiful picture of how all of this was coming together because God constantly confirms his word and fulfills his promises. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. Here's the prophecy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now let's look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Luke 1, 32 and 33. He tells her in verse 31 that she's going to conceive and bear a son, and his name is to be Jesus. Verse 32, the angel says he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give you the throne, give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is good news for us. The God that made the promise 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus is bringing that together. It's confirmed on both sides of the story, Joseph's perspective, Mary's perspective, the, the message is emphasized through the prophecy of Isaiah and it is a reminder to us that even when things look out of control and completely chaotic that God is in the process of confirming his word and fulfilling his promise regardless of the circumstances. And so here 
we find the prophet Isaiah being a great picture for us of God speaking beforehand about the one who would come, Jesus, the Messiah. So here's the reality. God orchestrates time and eternity toward the confirmation of his word and the fulfillment of his promises. He is orchestrating everything toward that. When that baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem, that was not a coincidence. That was providence. It was known well before 700 years before because throughout eternity past, God had a plan of redeeming humanity because God constantly confirms his word and fulfills his promises. But then the second thing, the fulfillment of God's promises centers on his son, Jesus Christ. You can't just pull a verse out of the Bible and and claim a promise. There are some stipulations to doing that, but the ultimate stipulation is whether or not you belong to Jesus Christ. The promises in his book apply to his people. And so apart from Christ, none of these promises apply to our lives. But in Christ, many of them are specifically and generally given to those who follow him and trust him and honor him. So the fulfillment of God's promises centers on his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40. As you're turning there, I I want to tell you something that's pretty fascinating to me, and that is... The prophecy of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is like a microcosm or a miniature of the entire Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 books of the Bible are known as the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we are given glimpses and foreshadows and pictures of the Messiah who will come, but but not anything completely clear and directly visible like we find in the New Testament. When you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you get glimpses and pictures of Jesus. You you get these foreshadowings, but, but there's a distinct change when you come to chapter 40. Just like there's a distinct change when you come to the 40th book in the Bible, the first book in the New Testament. Those final 27 books give us a specific picture of Jesus. We we look at him from every angle. We look at his redemptive work on the cross. We look at his resurrection. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the scripture says. And in those last 27 books, beginning with the Gospels all the way through to Revelation, we have these clear pictures of the Messiah. And so in chapter 40 of Isaiah, it's very similar because the tone completely changes. It's, It's moving away from pictures of rebellion and and idolatry and sin and hopelessness and judgment to comfort and hope resting in the person of the Messiah, Jesus himself. 
So the book of Isaiah is very much like a microcosm or a miniature of the entire Bible. There, there's such a distinct change at Isaiah 40. Uh, some scholars believe that, that there were two people involved in the writing of it because there's such a drastic move toward the comforting and, and beauty of the Messiah. So that brings us to Isaiah chapter 40. Beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight or plain and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now that prophecy is fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. There is to be a prophet that comes before the Messiah crying out, prepare the way of the Lord and preparing the people to follow him. And so if you turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, Matthew 3, 1 through 6, I mean, you find the fulfillment of that prophecy. Matthew 3, 1 through 6. And as we put these passages together, we see the fulfillment of God's promises centers on his son, Jesus Christ. Although this is a fulfillment of a prophecy about someone other than Jesus, the only importance that rested upon John the Baptist was the fact that he was the prophet and forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. Beginning at verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food were locusts and wild honey, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So when the voice begins to be heard, prepare the way of the Lord, and the people begin to gather around John the Baptist, this is a monumental, eternal prophecy being fulfilled as they gather. Even those who opposed Jesus and even those that didn't receive Jesus as Messiah began to question who John the Baptist was and in turn who Jesus was and the prophet Isaiah would come into the conversation and Elijah would come into the conversation because they knew the prophecies. They knew what had been said and they wondered and they marveled at that because here was the forerunner of Jesus. But here's something I want us to see. I want us to see how John responded when they began to put the focus on him because remember, 
the fulfillment of God's promises center on Jesus, not on us. John models that for us in John chapter 1. John, the apostle, wrote the gospel according to John, but he's speaking of John the Baptist in John chapter 1. find these words beginning in verse 19. of John chapter 1. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who are you? He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said to them, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You see, if you are a believer and you've put your faith and trust in Christ and and you claim to believe what the Bible says about Jesus, you also believe what it says about you. It says Jesus is the Messiah and we are his servants, just like John the Baptist acknowledged. And if you're going to find your identity in this book, You're not the Savior. You're not the Messiah. He is the Savior and the Messiah. You are his servant, his child, and that's it. Because God's promises and their fulfillment center on Jesus, not on you and not on me. Now, are we the recipient of some of those promises? Yes, when our lives are centered on Jesus. I want you to look at another scene in John chapter 3. Again, he's questioned. And in John chapter 3, verses 28 and verse 30, you find his response. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. For you to be the recipient of the great promises of the word of God, You cannot be the center of your own universe. You cannot be the focus of all of your attention and all of your efforts in life. Your focus has to be upon the person of Jesus Christ. You must decrease and he must increase. As long as you think that you can live good enough, as long as you think that you are going to be accepted to God apart from Christ and you're trying to live a good moral life and do good things, you will find yourself tragically disappointed because you can never live a thousand lives good enough. And the promise of eternal life rests upon the person of Jesus, not upon you. It's not upon your works, but upon his grace. The scripture says in 1 John 5, 12, he that has the Son, has life. He that does not have the Son 
does not have life. It doesn't get any simpler than that. That is the great divide. Jesus divides life from death, and you're either experiencing now eternal life or eternal death, even where you are right now. And so John sets a great example saying, I am not the Christ. You know what he could have done? He could have said, well, what makes you think I'm like Elijah? Am I really that fiery of a speaker? Or, or what makes you think that I'm this or that? He, he could have dabbled in that, but he refused to because his whole focus was on Jesus because the, the meaning and the purpose and the goal of his life was to point people to Jesus, not himself. He was to gather a crowd to give the crowd away. So we all have to remember the fulfillment of God's promises center on the person of his son, Jesus Christ, not on us. So you see the beautiful bridge built from Isaiah 700 years in the New Testament pointing to the one who would come. Then we come to the third truth I want us to focus on. And that is the fulfillment of God's promises exceeds all of our preferences and expectations. If you have walked with God for very long in a relationship established by Christ, you have found that to be true. God does not share our preferences. God does not meet our expectations. He exceeds all of that because he is God. But haven't you found yourself in the trap of giving God advice? Saying, God, you know, I know you're busy, but if you would just do this, that would make my life so much better. The reality is he's using even that which we want him to take away to bring about good in our lives. He's causing the, the withholding of blessing at times to increase our faith and trust before we receive that blessing. And so here in the promises of Isaiah, we're going to see that the, the fulfillment of God's promises exceeds all of our preferences and expectations. In Isaiah chapter 42, you find a vivid picture of this. <clears throat> Isaiah 42. Again, he's speaking of the Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, he says in verse 1, my elect one or chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And just think about those words. The one in whom my soul delights. You remember when Jesus was baptized? It's recorded in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. When he comes out of the water, a voice from heaven speaks, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God was putting an exclamation point upon his son and the instituting of his ministry there by saying, this is the one. He is the one in whom I am well pleased. He's the one in whom I delight. Then verses 5 through 9 of Isaiah 42. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. 
I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will uphold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, speaking of the Messiah, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I will tell you them. Just think about what's being said here. Something very radical. There are hints here to Isaiah 61, aren't there? The setting free of prisoners, giving sight to the blind, miraculous works of the Messiah. But in the context of that, he says the Messiah will be a light to the Gentiles or the entire world, non-Jewish nations, people groups outside of Israel, that will be the focus of the light. It will shine throughout the whole earth and he, the Messiah, will be the source of that light. Then if you turn to Isaiah chapter 49, you find yet a further description of this. Isaiah 49 verses 1 and 2. Listen, O coastlands, to me and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix or the inward parts of my mother. He has made mention of my name and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft in his quiver. He has hidden me. What an amazing picture of the Messiah. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix or the inward parts of my mother. He has made mention of my name. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Prophecy be fulfilled even to a greater extent when the angel says you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Even before he was in the womb of his mother, the prophecies were being fulfilled and his name was being spoken by God himself. But notice what he goes on to say in verses five and six. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you lest you should say, actually I'm reading the wrong verses there. Verses five and six of chapter 49. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob or Israel back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see the great promise there? The people of Israel were awaiting a political deliverer. 
there waiting a military leader that would overthrow the Roman government and, and bring them back as a nation. And he says that would be too small of a thing for this Messiah. He will be a light to the Gentiles and all the world will see his light and many will come to bow before him. Isn't that a great promise? If you weren't a Jew awaiting a small, limited Messiah, the reality is God's not from East Texas. God doesn't share our biases, our preferences. He is God. And the fulfillment of his promises exceeds all of our preferences and expectations. We would like to think that he would use the United States to continue to take the gospel to the world. But do you realize we are not just a missionary sending nation now? We are a missionary receiving nation because the worlds outside of our world are concerned about the diluting of the gospel they see in the United States. Wouldn't it be just like God to use a pagan nation to become the bright light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our world? And so here he's talking about a light to the nations or to the Gentiles. That was prophesied 700 years before Jesus comes and that day in the synagogue as an adult Rabbi, he emphasizes that with illustration after illustration after illustration of him being a light to the Gentiles. This is not a local nightlight. This is the light of the world. So where do we hear an echo of that or a fulfillment of that? We find it in Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, the slide is wrong, it's Luke 2, 25 to 35. Let me just set the scene here. They bring Jesus to the temple, Mary and Joseph do. They're going to give an offering. He will be circumcised under the old covenant and his name will be pronounced to the world. Because this one has been revealed to be Jesus who will take the sin of the world. And so it tells us in verse 25, there was an elderly man named Simeon. Tells us in verse 25, he was just and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here's a man that day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade after decade, he's walked with God and it says he was looking for the consolation of Israel. What was the consolation of Israel? The coming of the Messiah. He had looked and looked and looked. And on this day, it tells us the Spirit of God was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. Now before we finish the story, just think about this. He comes to the temple looking for Jesus. 
The Spirit of God is upon him. The Spirit of God is conversing with him. Through the promises of the Old Testament, he's, he's talking to him. He's promised to him that he will see the Messiah before he dies, and he comes to the temple by the Spirit. So don't even bother to ask, how did he know that Jesus was the Messiah? All of that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, some of us came to church today because that's what we always do. Some of us came to church today expecting to see people and disappointed when some are not here because we're wondering if they're sick or traveling or whatever. We're, we're focused on that. Some of us are here because others expect us to be. But the ones who will encounter Jesus today are the ones that came looking for consolation, the ones that came looking for him, guided here by the Spirit with our eyes open wide looking for his activity in our lives and his voice in his word, and, and we will receive from him. So when we leave church many times or worship and we say, I got nothing out of that, that's not a reflection on the worship service. That might be a reflection on our own hearts. Because thousands of people were at the temple that day. Thousands of people were milling about. Perhaps hundreds of people were bringing babies in there to do for them what was being done for Jesus. But when Simeon saw him, he knew that is the one. And the reality is the Holy Spirit only points to Jesus. So it says in verse 27, so he came by the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Here's another positive thing about Simeon. He stood by what the Bible said, not by what people said. The Bible said. He, he knew what the scripture said. The scripture didn't say he was just coming for the Jews. The scripture didn't say that he would just be a political military leader. The scripture didn't say he would be the fullest expression of Judaism, although that would be from where the Messiah would come. He knew the scripture said that he would bring revelation and light to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. You see, God through Simeon is reminding us that he doesn't share our preferences and he doesn't share our limitations because the fulfillment of God's word and his promises always exceeds our preferences and our expectations. Jesus was much more than they could ever fathom or imagine and that caused many to reject him. So here we're reminded of the eternal divide, aren't we? Those who walk in light, those who walk in darkness. There are two types of people according to Scripture, only two. We might subdivide those categories, etc., as human beings, but the Word of God says you're either saved or you're lost. You're either headed to heaven or you're headed to hell. You're either walking in light 
or you're walking in darkness. You're either walking in obedience to God or you're children of disobedience. You're either pleasing God or Satan is ravaging your life in his own pleasure. You are in one of those two categories and only those two categories. Today, even as I speak, your eternal destiny is beginning to take shape. He is the light to the Gentiles. Aren't you grateful for that? We would not even be in this room opening the word of God together if he were not. But the light has come. Well, then finally and quickly, the fulfillment of God's promises are anchored to the cross of Christ. The fulfillment of God's promises are anchored to the cross of Christ. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah chapter 50. Verses 4 through 7, it says this. This is the Messiah speaking prophetically. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Think about the torture that Jesus endured. Remember Pilate had a plot where he was going to try to get them to free Jesus. And so to spare him of crucifixion, he had him flogged. A very skillful torturer began to whip Jesus and flog him. Not just to be gross and go into detail, but that we might visualize what happened to Jesus. They, they had these strands of leather and in the end there were bits of metal, a rock. And they would not just lash the body, but they would wrap it around the body and then pull it off and it would rip ribbons of flesh. They did that right up to the point of death. They, they knew how to look at the different signs of their breathing and their, their blood loss, etc. And know when they were right at the point of death because they, they didn't want to kill them. They, they just wanted to torture them. This was called the halfway death. Jesus, with all the eternal power of heaven, could have walked away from that, but he suffered in our place. By the time he got to the cross, as possible, his rib cage was exposed. Perhaps you could even see his heart beating. So these simple words in this prophecy where he says, I am completely obedient. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard, those who hit me, and those who spat upon me in shame. He looked beyond the cross and suffered the shame. We find all of that in Matthew chapter 27. Then if we look at chapter 53, 
chapter 53, the pinnacle of the prophecy of Isaiah. You find these words beginning in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.